You're listening to the Word of Life AG Podcast. This is the message from this week's service. If you want to view the full service, including worship, please head to our website at wordoflifeag.org. While there, you can also see what's coming up at the church, or even check out some next steps. All right, let's dive into this week's message. Good morning. Word of life, so glad that you're able to come and spend this part of your weekend here with us. Um, as we go to her announcements, we've got a number of things coming up, but I wanted to highlight, and um, we have tailgating um, Sunday coming up. It's the first time we've done this, and so we're hoping it's going to be a bunch of fun, and so we encourage you, get your favorite uh, team's jersey and wear it to church that Sunday. We've had some questions about Red Sox jerseys. We're going to have an elders meeting about it. I've got a feeling I know how it's going to go. Um, there are a lot of great churches in the area. Um, I'm joking, I'm joking, kind of. All right, so we have our summer series kicking off next Sunday. We're going to be uh, spending nine weeks going through the fruit of the Spirit, um, specifically how the fruit of the Spirit teaches us and what it shows us about what it means to live set apart. I think as believers, we have this, uh, we have this understanding, we have this notion that we are indeed to live set apart from the world that we're in, and yet how do we do that? And so we're going to take time and through the lens of the fruit of the Spirit, we're going to consider what does it mean to live set apart, and that's going to be starting next Sunday. Um, and then I also wanted to put in front of the whole congregation. Um, over summertime, we generally don't have a lot of small groups that are running. There are some, but they're generally on a ton. Um, but Megan and I decided that we're going to lead a small group this summer. It's going to be on Wednesday evenings. We're going to meet in the lobby, and we're just going to spend time discussing uh, the weekend service. And so that group is open right now. It's an invitation for you to come and be a part of that. You can go on our website, Next Steps Groups, sign up um, and be a part of that. And this is certainly not the last time we'll mention it, but I just want to make sure everyone knew that you were invited to come and be a part of that. And so we're looking forward to doing that together. But for today, um, this is somewhat of an unusual message for me um, in the way I went about preparing it and how I sort of got started with getting my thoughts down. And um, as I started praying about what to bring today, um, one thing that is unusual is that I, I have somewhat of a confidence and certainty that this is not the only time I'm ever going to share this message. So if you hear something similar about 18 months or three years from now, um, I'm not surprised. But I wanted to share this with you, and I wanted to start off by simply reminding us of a truth that I hope we have deep in our hearts. And the truth is simply this, that Jesus is committed to building His church. Jesus is committed to building His church. This verse, many of us will know it well from Matthew 16. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock, upon the kind of faith, Peter, that you are demonstrating in this moment, on this kind of faith, I will build my church. I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. Jesus said, I will build my church with all the problems and criticisms people can level at the church for all the imperfections and negative things that have been accepted into churches. It doesn't change that Jesus is committed to building his church. You may have stories of churches that have not lived up to the, the profession of faith. You may have experience with churches that are negative. You may have seen things in churches that just aren't right. My friends, that may be a very true story and it may be a very painful story for you, but it does not change that Jesus is committed to building His church. And He has called each and every believer to be a part of the building. A few verses that highlight this, this one from 1 Corinthians. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. From the book of Ephesians, for we are God's masterpiece. 
He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Matthew 9, 36, this is a moment in the life of Jesus. When he, talking about Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He said to his disciples, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest, ask him to send more workers into his fields. Now think about what we just read, co-workers in God's service. Paul also wrote that we should build with care, that we are created anew for a purpose to do the good things God has planned. And then the answer to the confused and helpless people is more and more believers taking their place and making a difference. Jesus is committed to building his church, and he's calling all believers to be a part of the building with him. And there's two important things for us to have in mind today. The first is that we are called to join Jesus in building the church. And the second thing is that God thinks and plans generationally. God thinks and plans generationally. From the book of Psalms, for the Lord is good. His unfailing love continues forever and his faithfulness continues to each generation. Another Psalm from Psalm 71. Now that I am old and gray, this is Mike Chiz's life verse. He's not even here anymore. I got it. Now that I am old and gray, do not abandon me, O God. Let me proclaim your power to this new generation, your mighty miracles to all who come after me. Another psalm, for he issued his laws to Jacob. He gave his instructions to Israel. He commanded our ancestors to teach them to their children. So the next generation might know them, even the children not yet born. And they in turn will teach their own children. So each generation should set its hope anew on God, not forgetting his glorious miracles and obeying his commands. In Psalm 145, let each generation tell its children of your mighty acts. Let them proclaim your power. The commitment of Word of Life has to the next generation is hopefully obvious to see. We have a thriving youth ministry. Pastor Annie, rock star, thank you. Oh, come on, Pastor Annie, everybody. Thriving youth ministry, working with middle school and high school students. We have some great plans ahead for what's going to be happening at Life Youth. Our Sunday morning kids ministry is fantastic. And as I speak, I have three children over there learning about how amazing Jesus is and what it means to follow him. And Pastor Lisa let me know that they're going to be following along our summer series looking at the fruit of the Spirit. And they're starting today with an introduction to the fruit of the Holy Spirit. I said, can you teach on the commandment to honor thy father and mother? She said she already had plans. Our 20s, 30s ministry, we've heard about it today. They're meeting this afternoon afterwards to have lunch together. And the hope is that we can create a space for people to get together and meet people from the church and hopefully form some friendships and relationships and to build a sense of belonging among the young adults in our church. We also have the responsibility of hosting a private Christian school. And I don't mind telling you, it is not a small commitment. Can we get an amen from Mr. Driscoll? But we do it with joy because we believe that our school, the Word of Life Christian Academy, is making a much-needed impact in the next generation. I can even say that behind the scenes, whenever we plan an event or an outreach event or we plan a, uh, anything that go, really goes on here at the church, we always have in our mind, how is this going to affect our kids' ministry? How can we involve the teens in this? How can we involve our young adults? How can we be supportive to parents when we're thinking outreach? We're thinking, how can we come alongside the public schools and on and on the list goes of how we can incorporate the next generation? So hopefully... Our commitment to future generations is obvious and easy to see, but I felt challenged this week to consider the kind of church we will be passing along as an inheritance. Jesus is building his church, and each believer is called to be his co-laborer. 
God is committed to the generations, and we are called to care and think and build with generations in mind. So the question I want to consider with us today is what kind of church are we building for the future generations to inherit? What kind of church are we building for the future generations to inherit? We are all, each and every one of us, we are all embracing what generations that have gone before us have built. For instance, we have English translations of the Bible thanks to previous generations of believers, the denomination that we're a part of, the religious freedoms that we have here in America, the traditions and structures of the church. We are all enjoying the efforts of generations that have gone before us. Similarly, we have a God-given responsibility to build and set up the next generation and the future generations still to come. To help us think about the kind of church that we're building and really to help set up today's message, I want to consider how King David handed over the kingdom to King Solomon. From 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 10, Then David died and was buried with his ancestors in the city of David. David had reigned over Israel for 40 years, seven of them in Hebron and 33 in Jerusalem. Solomon became king and sat on the throne of David, his father, and the kingdom was firmly established. Now, David is typically regarded as the greatest king Israel would ever have. And from this verse, we can see that he handed the kingdom to his son Solomon, and Solomon would go on to be extremely prosperous and successful in his 40 years as the king. As we consider the legacy that we are building, the kind of church that we are working with Jesus to build, we really should be asking ourselves, what kind of inheritance are we preparing to pass on to future generations? And in David's life, we see that he started life as a struggle. He was the youngest of eight brothers from a poor family. And David would have been as surprised as anybody to learn that he was the one that God had chosen to be king and that he was the one that Samuel sent to go and anoint to be the future king. Later on, after David had killed Goliath, King Saul, the first king of Israel, was jealous, hunted David. He had the intentions to kill him. But God's hand was on David. He did indeed become king after Saul had died. Now, David was good, not perfect, but he was good. And the Bible records that even though David did some evil things, in the midst of difficulties, trials, danger, David would persist. David would become the greatest king Israel would ever have. And then we come to Solomon, David's son. Because of everything that David did and the way that he led the kingdom, it meant that Solomon inherited a strong kingdom. Solomon, he led the kingdom well. History shows that under Solomon's reign, Israel were at their most prosperous. It was under Solomon's oversight that the temple was built in Jerusalem. Solomon would write three books that we have in our Bible today. Solomon's fame and wisdom and excellence and leadership was renowned all over the ancient world. Because Solomon inherited a strong, stable kingdom from his father, there are blessings and advancements that he made that we wouldn't have been able to have made if the kingdom was under suffering. David left a legacy of a strong kingdom to Solomon. And Solomon was able to embrace a number of advantages and blessings that would have been a struggle if David hadn't done the hard work in the preparation. Remembering our charge, the charge to you and I today, to be both co-laborers with Christ to build his church and to think generationally about how we're building for those to come, we're going to look at how David handed over the kingdom to Solomon, what that meant for Solomon, what we can learn as we build the church, not only for ourselves, but also for the upcoming generations and every generation until Jesus returns. First thing, how did David prepare a legacy for Solomon? Firstly, he appointed the right leader. 
How did David prepare a legacy for Solomon? Firstly, he appointed the right leader. Flat out, Solomon was God's choice. From First Chronicles, and from among my sons, David talking. For the Lord has given me many. He chose Solomon to succeed me on the throne of Israel and to rule over the Lord's kingdom. Now, being God's choice should be the end of the story. But it's worth remembering that Solomon is not the oldest son of David, and it's tradition, even to this day, that when a monarch dies, the oldest child takes the throne. But biblically, there's a, a frequent theme of the younger brother surpassing the older. I hope no one tells my boys, because that'll lead to problems. But throughout the Bible, you see Jacob and Esau, you see Joseph's two sons, and Isaac and Ishmael. It's a consistent theme that the younger brother takes the spot that you would traditionally have for the older brother. Now, not only was Solomon the younger brother, he was also born into controversy. It was Solomon's mother who was Bathsheba, and it was her relationship with David that began as an extramarital affair. Surely this scandal was well known and caused people to whisper behind Solomon's back, but he was God's choice. Now there's two other of David's sons wanted to be king, Absalom and Adonijah, and we need to resist. For the sake of future generations, we need to resist appointing Adonijah's and Absalom's. Adonijah was bitter and angry, and he felt entitled to the throne. He tried to appoint himself and rally support. Now, nobody likes an angry person. The only time we do like angry people is when we are also angry, and we are angry at the same thing. Then we've got a new best friend. But Adonijah was angry, bitter, felt entitled to the throne. And Absalom, he tried to usurp the throne by winning the hearts of the people and manipulating them to win their trust. It's remarkable that these same issues and problems are seen in leadership today. Church leaders who are angry, like Adonijah was, angry at the people that we are supposed to love, bitter over how they've been hurt in ministry, or pastors and leaders who have charmed their way into positions of power like Absalom tried to do, sadly with tragic outcomes. I feel I've said this a couple of times now, and I'm rather confident it's not going to be the last time, but my friends, please, be wary of preachers that appeal to your selfishness. Be wary of preachers that appeal to your selfishness. If your Instagram feed or your YouTube short feed is anything like mine, I consistently see 30-second clips on, of preachers on YouTube all the time, and they're subtly appealing to our selfishness. And if someone is subtly appealing to our selfishness, it means that they're appealing to the side of us that the Holy Spirit is trying to shrink in our lives. If something is appealing to our selfishness, it means that it's feeding what God is trying to starve in our hearts. If there's preaching and there's pastors and leaders and their sermons are filled with me and my blessing and my destiny and my prospering and my anointing and my miracle and my breakthrough and my provision and my happiness and me, 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 it's the same kind of thing that Absalom was doing. From 2 Samuel, he, talking about Absalom, got up early every morning and went out to the gate of the city. When people brought a case to the king for judgment, Absalom would ask um, where in Israel they were from, and they would tell him their tribe. Then Absalom would say, you've really got a strong case here. It's too bad the king doesn't have anyone to hear it. I wish I were the judge. Then everyone could bring their cases to me for judgment, and I would give them justice. When people tried to bow before Absalom, he wouldn't let them. Instead, he took them by the hand and kissed them. Absalom did this with everyone who came to the king for judgment, and so he stole the hearts of all the people of Israel, because he appealed to their selfishness. Solomon, he was not the obvious choice. He wasn't the popular choice. 
He didn't fight his way to get there, but he was God's choice. And we should applaud David for getting the appointment right. In service to future, if one person claps, we all have to. In service to future generations, we should be careful in appointing leadership. Angry, bitter, and entitled leaders like Adonijah have no place in church leadership. Smooth-talking manipulators have no place in church leadership. For the sake of the generations to come, let's commit to being slow to appointing church leadership, and let's do so with prayer and careful consideration to discern God's choice. Second thing, how did David prepare a legacy for Solomon? Secondly, he left a solid plan and resources. He left a solid plan and resources. Of all the things that Solomon achieved, overseeing the building of the temple in Jerusalem is probably the most famous achievement. But we often forget that David, his father, gave him a solid plan and resources. We're reading this from 1 Chronicles. Then David said, this will be the location for the temple of the Lord God and the place of the altar for Israel's burnt offerings. So David gave orders to call together the foreigners living in Israel, and he assigned them the task of preparing finished stone for the building, the temple of God. David provided large amounts of iron for the nails that would be needed for the doors in the gates and for the clamps, and he gave more bronze than could be weighed. He also provided innumerable cedar logs, for the men of Tyre and Sidon had bought vast amounts of cedar to David. David said, my son Solomon is still young and inexperienced, and since the temple to be built for the Lord must be magnificent structure, famous and glorious throughout the world, I will begin making preparations for it now." So David collected vast amounts of building materials before his death. Then David sent for his son Solomon and instructed him to build a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel. My son, I wanted to build a temple to honor the name of the Lord my God, David told him. But the Lord said to him, you have killed many men in the battles you have fought. And since you have shed so much blood in my sight, you will not be the one to build a temple to honor my name. But you will have a son who will be a man of peace. I will give him peace with his enemies in all the surrounding lands. His name will be Solomon, and I will give peace and quiet to Israel during his reign. He is the one who will build a temple to honor my name. He will be my son, and I will be his father. And I will secure the throne of his kingdom over Israel together. Now, my son, may the Lord be with you and give you success as you follow his directions in building the temple of the Lord your God. And may the Lord give you wisdom and understanding that you may obey the law of the Lord your God as you rule over Israel for you will be successful if you carefully obey the decrees and regulations that the Lord gave to Israel through Moses. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or lose heart. I've worked hard to provide materials for building the temple of the Lord. Nearly 4,000 tons gold, 40,000 tons of silver, and so much iron and bronze that it cannot be weighed. I've also gathered timber and stone for the walls, though you may need to add more. You have a large number of skilled stonemasons and carpenters and craftsmen of every kind. You have expert goldsmiths and silversmiths and workers of bronze and iron. Now begin the work and may the Lord be with you. And David ordered all the leaders of Israel to assist Solomon in this project. The Lord your God is with you, he declared. He has given you peace with surrounding nations. He has handed them over to me and they are now subject to the Lord and his people. Now seek the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. Build the sanctuary of the Lord God so that you can bring the ark of the Lord's covenant and the holy vessels of God into the temple built to honor the Lord's name. That's a long passage of scripture. But if you are tracking along with me, you can clearly see 
David gathering everything that Solomon would need, building and formulating a plan so that when it was now time for Solomon to build, because it wouldn't be David that would build the temple, it would be his son Solomon, that he had everything he needed to get going. One of the best books I've read in the last few years is by a pastor by the name of Chuck Swindle, and it's about the life of King David, and he wrote this. David has unrolled the plans he's been thinking through, and he's walking around the city saying, this is where the house will be, this is, uh, and this is the altar area, knowing that he's not actually going to build the house of God. He gives support. David left a plan. He left a plan. And how do we leave a plan? And this whole idea about being co-workers with Christ, building the church, how do we pass along a plan? Well, firstly, we share what we've learned. We mentor, we teach, we coach. We teach how to run effective ministries. We share best practices and systems and we impart a sense of vision. We share the lessons that we've learned along the way and we share the lessons we've learned the hard way. We have a focus and a purpose. We're prayerful and confident about what God has called us to. We should have a sense of direction. We don't just pass along theory, but we pass along practical insight and advice. And we have the courage to start something we cannot finish. And how do we leave resources? My friends, each generation pays a price. This building, the pews that we're sitting on, the sound system, the kids' classrooms, they're all here today and we're all enjoying them today because somebody paid a price. There's a plaque in the vestibule as you come into church today, there's that vestibule before you get into the lobby, there's a small plaque that's very easy to miss. But on the plaque, it highlights and it points out that this half of the building, the new portion of the church building, it was opened in May 16th, 2004. In 2004, in May of that year, I was in the UK. I was hoping to be on staff at my church one day. I was thinking about Bible college already, but I was working as a bank teller in a local bank. Now, I have ADHD. And one of the ways my ADHD shows itself is that I can't count to 20. Sounds ridiculous, but it goes something like 17, 18, 19, 20, 20, 21, 20, and I have to start all over again. Now, normally it doesn't cause too many problems, but when you're a bank teller, it was not a great career move. Meanwhile, in Baldwinsville, New York, a church is being built. When I was 20 years old, living in the UK, I'm not even sure I'd ever even heard of Syracuse, New York. I definitely hadn't heard of Baldwinsville, New York. And little did I know that 3,000 miles away, a group of people were following a plan. They were making sacrifices. They were paying a price so that a future generation could have a place to gather and to worship. And I'm fully expecting that Megan and I that will be called upon at some point to pay a price and rally a generation of believers together to pay a price, to set up the next generation, to craft a plan and start something that we won't be able to finish, but to pass along the resources so that a future generation can indeed follow the plan and see God complete something amazing. Having a solid plan and resources means passing on something to do and the ability to get started. Having a solid plan and resources means passing on something to do and the ability to get started. Third thing, how did David prepare a legacy for Solomon? How did David prepare a legacy for Solomon? He fought for peace. He fought for peace. David handed Solomon a nation during peacetime. From 1 Kings, you know that my father David was not able to build a temple to honor the name of the Lord his God because of his many wars waged against him by surrounding nations. 
He could not build until the Lord gave him victory over his enemies. But now the Lord my God has given me peace on every side. I have no enemies, and all is well. So I'm planning to build a temple to honor the name of the Lord my God, just as he had instructed my father David. Now, some people, they actually have taken the time, and I thank these people for doing this, and I also thank them for putting it online. Some people have counted the number of times that David fights, as is recorded in the Old Testament. According to the Old Testament, David fought 66 times. Eight of these times was a major battle, and then there was also the time that he took out Goliath. And all this meant, all the fighting that David was involved in, all the battles that he fought, all the victories that he fought, it meant that he handed over a kingdom that was enjoying a period of peace. But it was only possible because he fought to make it possible. Now, the notion of fighting, it may sound antithetical to the peace and love that we uphold as believers. And yet, there's a call to fight for the followers of Jesus. Paul puts himself as an example. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race, and I have remained faithful. I have fought the good fight. So how do we fight? How should a church fight? Firstly, we fight for a good reputation in the community. We fight for a good reputation, that we are who we say you are, that we stand by our word, that we're good neighbors. We fight to be a blessing to the community. If there's a need, we're going to do what we can to help meet that need. If there's a sense of aching or pain within the community, we're going to do what we can to help bring relief. We're going to fight to make sure people know that we are a church that loves them. We're going to fight for integrity in the church. We're going to fight for basic character and integrity. We're going to fight for the message of Jesus to stay uninfected. That's how we fight. Three ways. We can prepare a legacy for the next generation, appoint the right leaders, leave a solid plan and resources, and fight for what matters. Now Solomon, he made the most of what he inherited from his father, and David handed Solomon a strong legacy. And the right leader had been appointed. Solomon's got a plan to build the temple, and he's got the supplies to do it. His father fought to make sure the kingdom is in a time of peace so Solomon could get his reign off to a strong start. And it set him up to be a great king and lead in a way that saw the whole kingdom benefit. Consequently, the whole nation enjoyed prosperity. It says this in 1 Kings 10, that the king made silver as plentiful in Jerusalem as stone. Can you imagine silver being as common as stone? Silver was considered worthless in Solomon's day. Under Solomon's kingship, Israel would prosper and continue to enjoy peace. They would also earn the respect and admiration of the whole world. It's impossible to imagine Solomon being able to lead the nation to such blessing and security and spiritual vitality without being handed such a strong legacy from David. It's a great example for us because Solomon didn't waste the inheritance his father gave him. Consequently, Solomon embraced his inheritance. So what can we learn from Solomon? How did Solomon embrace the legacy David gave him? Firstly, he prioritized wisdom. How did Solomon embrace the legacy? How did Solomon make sure he didn't waste the opportunity his father had handed him? He prioritized wisdom. From 1 Kings 3, that night the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream. This is just after he'd been crowned king. And God said, what do you want? Ask and I will give it to you. This is a blank check from God Almighty. And Solomon replied, you showed great and faithful love to your servant, my father David, because he was honest and true and faithful to you. And you have continued to show this great and faithful love to him today by giving him a son to sit on his throne. Now, O oh Lord my God, you have made me king instead of my father David, but I am like a little child who doesn't know his way around. And here I am in the midst of your own chosen people, a nation so great and numerous they cannot be counted. 
Give me an understanding heart so that I can govern your people well and know the difference between right and wrong. For who by himself is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for wisdom. So God replied, because you have asked for wisdom in governing my people with justice, and have not asked for a long life or wealth or the death of your enemies, I will give you what you have asked for. I will give you a wise and understanding heart such as no one else has ever had or ever will have. I will also give you what you did not ask for, riches and fame. No other king in all the world will be compared to you for the rest of your life. And if you follow me and obey my decrees and my commands as your father David did, I will give you a long life. Solomon could have asked for anything and received anything, and he chose wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to make strong decisions, to understand with a true perspective. It means conducting yourself in a way that minimizes regrets. It, it means to live with wisdom and having the future in mind. It's wisdom that prepares you for life's storms. God is our source of wisdom, and that's not a small thing. Solomon choosing wisdom over anything else is a great reminder of this. Second thing. How did Solomon embrace the legacy David gave him? He inspired passionate builders. He inspired passionate builders. David gave him a plan and he gave him the resources and now it's time to get going. From 1 Chronicles, I have worked hard to provide materials for building the temple of the Lord, nearly 4,000 tons of gold, 40,000 tons of silver, and so much iron and bronze that it cannot be weighed. I've also gathered timber and stone for the walls, though you may need to add more. You have a large number of skilled stonemasons and carpenters and craftsmen of every kind. You have expert goldsmiths and silversmiths and workers of bronze and iron. Now begin the work and may the Lord be with you. And that's a great way to set someone up for success. There's a plan, there's the resources, there's the expertise and the know-how. Solomon had what he needed to get started. And the temple was a massive undertaking. It would have taken tens of thousands of workers to complete. In today's money, it would have cost millions of dollars. It was so spectacular that it is considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And people were inspired to build. Let's build something that people will passionately lock arms and pitch in for. Let's build something that people will sacrifice and commit to. Each and every believer is called to be a co-laborer with Christ in building his church. There is no greater joy than seeing the kingdom of God advance. There is no greater joy than people hearing and responding to the message of Jesus, of people being helped and lifted up and finding belonging in the community of faith, or people finding discipleship and piecing their life back together again, or people finding purpose and meaning because they've become alive in Christ. There is no greater joy. Churches should be filled with the most passionate builders around because our mission is the greatest mission there is. Our mission is to faithfully join with Jesus in building the church and establishing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. We are building a church in Baldwinsville that is determined to make a difference in the lives of people who need to know that there is a savior, that there is hope, and that the love of God is not just a theory or something nice you put on a coffee cup, but it is absolutely life-changing. My hope is the word of life won't just be a church you attend, but it's a church that you enjoy building. Third thing, how did Solomon embrace the legacy David gave him? He lived as a true worshiper. He lived as a true worshiper. 1 Kings 8.3, when all the elders of Israel arrived, the priests picked up the ark. The priests and Levite brought the ark of the Lord along with the special tent and all the sacred items that had been put in it. There before the ark, King Solomon and the entire community of Israel sacrificed so many sheep, goats, and cattle that no one could keep count. 
Then the priest carried the Ark of the Lord's Covenant into the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, and placed it beneath the wings of the cherubim. When the priest came out of the holy place, a thick cloud filled the temple of the Lord. The priest could not continue the service because of the cloud, for the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple of the Lord. Then Solomon prayed, O Lord, you have said that you would live in a thick cloud of darkness. Now I have built a glorious temple for you, a place where you can live forever. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the entire community of Israel. He lifted his hands toward heaven, and he prayed, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in all of heaven above or on the earth below. You keep your covenant and show unfailing love to all who walk before you in wholehearted devotion. You have kept your promise to your servant David, my father. You made a promise with your own mouth and with your own hands. You have fulfilled it today. May you watch over this temple night and day. This place where you have said, my name will be there. May you always hear the prayers I make toward this place. May you hear the humble and earnest request from me and your people Israel when we pray toward this place. Yes, hear us from heaven where you live. And when you hear, forgive. Now, there's a lot of expressions here in this passage that are not what you and I as 21st century New Covenant believers would necessarily associate with worship. We don't have a spectacular temple laden with golden statues of cherubims, and we don't have the Ark of the Covenant or a system of priesthood. And thank God we don't make sacrifices like that anymore because hundreds of years later, Jesus would be the ultimate sacrifice. But despite these differences in practicality, and the differences in what you and I may associate with how we express worship, there is something here that definitely resonates with us. What's clear to see from Solomon's example, the honor and reverence that he showed towards God is inspiring. The picture of God's presence being so thick in the temple that the priests had to take a break from their duties still captivates us because we want our times of worship to be that powerful. The declaration of who God is, remembering that He is true to His word, He is faithful to His promises, that He and He alone is worthy of our adoration and praise, it still inspires us. Back in January, we did a, a five-week series looking at the whole subject of worship. One of the main things that came about, it felt weekly we were repeating, that worship surely is more than just gathering and singing some songs. And we see that modeled for us with Solomon. We've all inherited a legacy from generations of church builders. We've all inherited from previous co-laborers with Christ. And there are three ways that you and I can embrace the legacy that we've inherited. And we have inherited a legacy. We can prioritize wisdom. We can be passionate builders. And we can live as true worshipers. One of the great tragedies of the Bible is that Solomon did not finish well. He had every opportunity to finish his race well, but unfortunately along the way, he got distracted. Solomon forgot his priorities and failed to uphold his relationship with God. Solomon should be remembered as a true biblical hero, but despite so many positives and qualities, he simply didn't finish well. From the biblical account, we can read that Solomon, Solomon subtly and slowly lost sight of his priorities. Solomon let distractions creep in and his focus drifted away from his relationship with God. This is demonstrated in two of his building projects, his temple and the palace. It says this in 1 Kings, so it took seven years to build the temple. The temple that Solomon built for the Lord was 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, and 45 feet high. The entry room at the front of the temple was 30 feet wide, running across the entire width of the temple. It projected outward 15 feet from the front of the temple. 
Now Solomon also built a palace for himself, and it took 13 years to build. It took 13 years to complete the construction. One of Solomon's buildings was called the Palace of the Forest of Lebanon. It was 150 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Now, if you're anything like me and you start to hear numbers rattling off like that, just like when I was a bank teller, you kind of get yourself getting lost. But that works out that the Temple of Solomon took seven years. The square footage of the temple, based on the numbers that are recorded in Scripture, is 2,700 square feet. Compare that to the palace that he built where it didn't take seven years, it took 13. And the square footage wasn't 2,700, it was 11,250. This is a subtle picture and a subtle illustration of where Solomon's priorities had gone wrong. His focus and his call from God was to build the temple. And he did, he did. But he also built a really honky big palace for himself. It's a clear indication of where he just got his focus wrong. His priorities got off course. It's interesting to see that in the book of Deuteronomy, which is written 300 years before Solomon was born, God tries to warn the people about this. Deuteronomy 17, 14. You are about to enter the land the Lord your God is giving you. Remember, 300 years before Solomon would ever take the throne. When you take it over and settle there, you may think we should select a king to rule over us like the other nations around us. If this happens, be sure to select as king the man the Lord your God chooses. You must appoint a fellow Israelite. He may not be a foreigner. The king must not build up a large stable of horses for himself or send his people to Egypt to buy horses. For the Lord has told you, you must never return to Egypt. The king must not take many wives for himself because they will turn his heart away from the Lord. And he must not accumulate large amounts of wealth in silver and gold for himself. Now there's some very specific warnings about the king. When you have a king, there's going to be some problems. To help alleviate these problems, don't get too many horses and definitely don't get them from Egypt, which is strangely specific. Don't take too many wives. Don't acquire too much gold. And we see this in the latter part of Solomon's life, 1 Kings 10. Solomon built up a huge force of chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses. He stationed some of them in the chariot cities and some near him in Jerusalem. The king made silver as plentiful in Jerusalem as stone, and valuable cedar timber was as common as the sycamore fig trees that grew in the foothills of Judah. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from Cilicia. The king's traders acquired them from Cilicia at the standard price. At that time, chariots from Egypt could be purchased for 600 pieces of silver and horses for 150 pieces of silver. They were, uh, they were then exported to the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Aram. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women. Besides Pharaoh's daughters, he married women from Moab, Ammon, Edom, Sidon, and even among the Hittites. The Lord had clearly instructed the people of Israel, you must not marry them because they will turn your hearts to their gods. Yet Solomon insisted on loving them anyway. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. And in fact, they did turn his heart away from the Lord. In Solomon's old age, they turned his heart to worship other gods instead of being completely faithful to the Lord his God as his father David had been. Solomon worshipped Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. In this way, Solomon did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He refused to follow the Lord completely as his father David had done. Don't get too many horses, specifically from Egypt. Don't take too many wives. Don't acquire too much gold. 
it will turn your heart away from the Lord. And it's tragic to read that that is exactly what happened. It's a sad ending for someone who had achieved so much. And after reflecting on all this this week, I came to a conclusion. If you take what you have for granted, the price is the next generation not having what you had. If you take what you had for granted, the price is the next generation not having what you had. Because to pass along means us, our generation, paying the price, making our own sacrifice, following David's example of how to hand over a strong kingdom. David, he struggled and fought to hand over something worthwhile. Solomon, he inherited a kingdom in great shape and he achieved many great things, but he got distracted. After Solomon died, there was a messy succession and the nation of Israel was split into two and it started a pendulum swing. If you read the, the books of, of Kings and you start reading about how there was a good king and a bad king and back and forth it went. The nation of Israel and Judah, they ended up in poverty and eventually in ruin. And we will never know what would have happened if Solomon would have remained faithful. We'll never know how history would have been changed if Solomon would have handed over the country in the same way that he received it. What would have changed? How would things have been better? What about if Solomon would have prioritized leadership? What if he left a solid plan of resources? What if Solomon fought for peace? What can happen if each generation keeps faithfully building on what was built by the generations before? Sadly, Solomon is now a cautionary tale about finishing poorly. But in his young years, he was a role model. He demonstrated how to embrace a strong legacy. And how can we embrace a strong legacy in the way that Solomon did? We can prioritize wisdom. Prioritize wisdom. Learn from the past. Learn from the lessons generations before us figured out. Dig into the Bible and learn how to navigate life in the light of who God is and how much He loves us. Learn how to go through life and how to minimize regrets. If you seek wisdom, ask the Lord and He will be there to help. Seek the Lord for wisdom and help in making decisions and to discerning good, bad, right, wrong, left and right. Care about your life. Care about the outcome. Care about the kind of life that you're building. Care about wisdom. Let's be passionate builders. Solomon built the temple. My friend, what are you building? Build something that will outlast you. Build something that you know you cannot finish. Get started on something that you cannot complete that the future generations will need to pick up where you've left off. Find joy in building the kingdom of God. Find joy in building the church. Find fulfillment and purpose in faithfully tithing. Find the joy in helping people experience on earth as it is in heaven. Find the fulfillment of building a community of faith that is welcoming and inviting and is a part of people's lives being truly changed. And let's live as true worshipers. Let's worship and reflect and respond to God's promises. Let's remember His faithfulness. I look forward to gathering together on Sunday mornings and whenever you get a chance to get together as a community of believers and worship, it builds me up and refreshes my soul. And I'm always anticipating that the Lord's presence is gonna dwell among us whenever we lift up His name. And even though there's a call and there's a charge and I hope that we decide that we're gonna live like David, embracing what has happened before us in future generations, let's finish like David. Let's finish like David. Let's hand over to the next generation in the same fashion that David did. Let's appoint the right leaders. Let's not appoint angry leaders like Ajanijah. Let's not give platforms to people who are appealing to our selfishness like Absalom. 
Let's be slow in appointing people to pastoral positions. Let's take leadership responsibilities seriously. Let's take ministry director responsibilities seriously, team leader responsibilities, small group leadership responsibilities seriously. Let's be done with scandals and hypocrisy. Let's pray and be careful about who we promote. Let's be like David and leave a solid plan and resources. I want the next generation to be stronger, healthier, and better than us. I've heard from many people that have immigrated to the United States that they've come and they've done whatever they've needed to do to make it here in America, all with the hopes that their children and grandchildren are going to have it better than they ever did. I heard a great story recently about uh, someone that was a janitor at Harvard University. And this janitor came to the United States, didn't speak much English, was uneducated, got an entry-level job at Harvard. But because he worked at Harvard, it meant that all five of his children could go to one of the best colleges in the entire world for free. That is thinking generationally. Taking an entry-level job, sacrificing, doing many thankless tasks so that the next generation could go further and farther and faster than you ever could. Let's pass along a church that is prepared for the next generation. Let's pass along a church that is filled with hope and has a plan. Let's give the next generation a church that has a determination to honor God and a determination to love people. Let's teach and mentor the next generation of church leaders so that they can get off to a strong start. And let's be like David, and let's fight for what matters. Let's fight for what matters. We're gonna fight for a good reputation in the community. We're going to fight to be a blessing to our neighbors. We're going to fight to make sure that people know that we're a church that loves them. We're going to fight for integrity in the church. We're going to fight for the message of Jesus to stay uninfected. There's a generation who need to know that the message of Jesus is the best news that they will ever hear. That the message of Jesus is something that they should take seriously. My friends, for us to communicate this message in a way that is said, heard, understood and believed is a fight. If we're going to say it so that it's heard, it's understood, and it's believed, it's a fight, and it's a fight that matters, and it's a fight that's worth it. This is, of course, not a call for physical violence, but it's a call to persistence. It's a call to prayer. It's a call to care about the same people God cares about. A verse that I've shared many times so far this year that still resonates with me so deeply this is news we need to share with our community. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Then Jesus said, Come to me, all of you, who are weary, who are worn out by life, who have been carrying too much for too long, and you're done. You don't think you can do it another day. You don't think you can make it through another day. You can't make it through another appointment. You can't make it through. You can't. You don't know how you're going to get through next week. Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens. And the promise from Jesus is I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Partner with me. Come alongside me. Do life with me. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I'm humble and gentle at heart. Not like the voices in society, not like the loudest voices in our culture. I'm not angry, I'm not proudful, I'm humble and gentle at heart. And you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. 
by finishing like David, I believe we can keep a cycle going where the generations to come can prioritize wisdom, they can inspire passionate builders, and they can be true worshipers. My friends, there's so much we could talk about with this handover from David to Solomon. But I think for us today that we need to remember the importance to prioritize wisdom, to be passionate builders, to live as true worshipers, to appoint the right leaders, to leave a solid plan of resources, to fight for what matters. A couple of questions for you today. If you're in the habit of writing these down, I encourage you to do so. The first thing is, how are you preparing the church for future generations to inherit? How are you preparing the church for future generations to inherit? How are you being mindful about leadership? How are you um, being concerned about having a plan and resources and fighting for what matters? How are you preparing the church for future generations to inherit? And secondly, are you appropriately embracing the legacy you inherited? We are inheriting, we have inherited, we are enjoying what previous generations of believers have made possible. Are you appropriately embracing the legacy you inherited? Are we prioritizing wisdom? Are we passionate builders? Are we true worshipers? Let me go ahead. I want to invite you to stand. I'm going to pray. Lord, take something from this message. Lord, may it speak to people. Lord, can my words please just fade to the background, but your word may grab a hold of people's hearts, may be very deep in people's hearts and minds. Lord, so that we truly can embrace all that we've been left, all that we've inherited, all that we get to enjoy, and that we can pass on a church that is passionate for you. Lord, we love you. We believe you're moving. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Thanks, Luke.